Hi, and welcome to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast. I am your host, Mike Hendley. Episode 28, Pens, Ink, Paper, and Business Advice with the pen addict, Brad Doughty. So hi, everyone. I hope you're doing well. I have a couple of updates, and then we'll get right into the interview. So um, I've struggled over the last couple of weeks in getting some art done. <laughs> I've been playing a lot with digital. But I did uh, work on a uh, nuthatch. It took me longer than I planned, but it wasn't so much that the piece took me long. It's that um, life gets busy and uh, work has been very busy. I just haven't had a chance. And so I did finally finish it. I posted it on various uh, social media channels, including my Instagram and a couple of Facebook groups. And I've just been blown away by the feedback. I'd just like to thank everyone who's uh, been so supportive it, uh, I think, is going to end up as a larger piece. I really enjoyed drawing this nut hatch. They're a little bit cheeky, and I've uh, I did one previously digitally, and this one was graphite, and I really enjoyed that. I think I'm going to, uh, as I mentioned, I'll do a larger one, and I think it's going to be at the point in time when I'm actually going to start selling prints and originals. So I'm uh, really looking forward to that. I've also had. I think a request for maybe three or four commissions. Um, so I'm I'm kind of weighing that a little bit. I'm not sure about the commissions bit, but it's interesting as an artist who's coming up into this and has the potential to uh, to monetize their hobby that uh, this is uh, coming up. And so I, I don't know what I'm going to do yet. I'm still thinking about it. We'll see. I'll probably have another update at the uh, for the next episode. So I wanted to also kind of call out, I know that so many students have either had their um, student year slightly disrupted or they are trying to finish it online. I know this has been a challenge. I've got uh, two teenage daughters. It's been a challenge for both of them in many ways. So I had a thought that um, a, uh, a friend of mine, I did a workshop with him. He's a teacher and he uh, shared a site of his students' work. And so he, the site is called Expo Varius, I think is, it's a French pronunciation. My French is as good as it used to be. And he's with uh, L'Ecole Secondaire Publique de la Salle à Ottawa. So it's a, a school here in Ottawa. He's an art, art teacher. And so the site's just fantastic. It's really well done. It uh, is basically displaying all the artworks from grade 8 to 12. And I'm so encouraged by this to see kids um, devoting so much time and effort into these visual arts. I really recommend you checking it out uh, because you know this is coming from the heart and uh, from these minds of these kids that are coming up and, and looking at what's happening around them and around the world and interpreting kind of their view of things. And it's just beautiful. So please take some time out and uh, check out the website. The website will be listed in the show notes. You know, hats off to the three teachers, um, including uh, Vincent Kember, who's the uh, who's who's uh, who I did the workshop with. Um, I, th- these guys are great, and uh, way to pull it together and way to showcase these pieces for these uh, for these students. So um, I also wanted to say that if you are an art teacher and you're listening to this and you have an Instagram account or a website or someplace where you have the work of your students highlighted, let me know. 
I'll give you a shout out. Uh, I'm going to do this for maybe the next two or three episodes. And let's get uh, some of this visual art out there and uh, share it with the rest of the world. So just send me a note through various social media channels. Just send me a message and uh, share the link with me. Give me a little bit of a background and I'll share it in the next episode. I just think this is absolutely wonderful and I, I would really love to see so much more of this. So I had an interesting uh, thing happen to me over the past uh, week. Uh, a good friend of mine who I've known for years, his mom is moving into a small apartment. And so as part of the downsizing, she's been kind of a hobby artist for years. And she's been collecting art supplies from uh, friends of hers and stuff that she's purchased. And so she had this large collection. And as part of the downsizing, he thought of me being the artist <laughs> that maybe I could make use of it. And so I was able to post it to a local group and I found somebody who's an artist, but she also teaches. And she teaches at a location for teenagers who are running into kind of some troubled times. And so she teaches these teenage girls art as part of, um, I guess, part of their recovery in this program. And uh, she mentioned that they don't have many art supplies. So I thought this is a great opportunity. So I was able to grab uh, the art. It was just a couple of boxes of supplies, a couple of easels. Uh, I should say one easel, and then I threw in one of my easels and a bunch of paint as well and uh, dropped it off to her. And she was just blown away. And I think we always have to be mindful. Um, you know, I, I didn't do anything special here except kind of connect the dots. And so if you do have some art supplies, uh, always consider the fact that there may be people out there that I just, that want to do something special and they don't have access to it. And I think if there are supplies that you've moved away from, uh, maybe you started in oils and now you're working in something else or vice versa, that uh, maybe you can find a home for them rather than them going stale or, or ending up uh, in a garbage pile somewhere, that there may be others that may... Uh, find uh, joy in using some of those supplies. So um, if you can, try and reach out into your local areas and see if there's people that uh, could make use of that. Now, I really enjoyed this next interview with a friend of mine, and I know you will too. You know, as it is with good friends, we run a little long, but stick around to the end because uh, this is a good one. I often talk about finding inspiration on this podcast through my guests and the work they have done. My guest this week has been a source of inspiration for me through not only the tools I use, but also how I consume and share information. His enthusiasm and easygoing style are responsible for my love of pens, ink, and paper. He has been sharing his knowledge of writing instruments and paper for years through a variety of channels. He runs a few websites. He co-hosts a podcast with Mike Hurley, which has served as part of my motivation in starting this very podcast. You could call him the Prince of Paper or even the Ink King but his friends and followers know him as the pen addict to talk about his creative journey, turning his passion into a business. And of course, pens and paper. I welcome to the drawing inspiration podcast, Brad Doughty. Hi, Brad. How are you? I'm great, Mike. Uh, it's clear you don't know me that well, because I don't think your intro would have been that nice if you really did. But thank, <laughs> thank you for the kind words. I really appreciate that. I, like, I, it makes you feel good. Like I, I'm, I appreciate you saying all that. You know, I, I love pen and ink and paper. But I've also really enjoyed just the conversation you and Mike have on that podcast is special. And even though some of it is over my head because you love your subjects so much <laughs> and you've got so much history, but I just, it's, it's so enjoyable. And I think your knowledge is, is vast. And I really wanted to have you on 
because so many of us as artists uh, draw with with ink and we love our paper and we love our pens and I thought it would be a great experience to talk about just not like not just that component of it but also how you've grown your business and the way you reach out and the way you do business because I think that that plays into some of us who are looking at monetizing what we're doing and it was funny because I look back I, I didn't know I know I've probably heard it on the podcast but I was trying to see how old the podcast was and it goes back to 2012 um that's crazy <laughs> yeah so we just recorded uh episode 412 um so the that's once a week for however many years that is i think we've you know, we'll take the last week of the year off now we used to not even do that we used to do it basically 52 weeks a year and now we take the last week of the year off um and we'll have some road shows mixed in there nowadays which we're fortunate to do and then the blog itself goes back to 2007 so it's uh i don't want to say i'm old hat at it because like the internet makes you feel like you don't know anything in like the tomorrow like you don't everything's new on the internet but mm -hmm. i have been doing some things for a while now so if we so 2007 so how far back does this go for you like i mean the pen the pen thing goes back to when i was a kid like it always mattered what i wrote with i all i wanted to do was write tiny and back you know i'm an i'm an older gentleman um you know uh, me and you will get along pretty well i think um mm -hmm. back in the the late 70s early 80s when i'm in like elementary middle school and high school in the late 90s you just don't have the access to things that you have now even though these things might exist you don't know because we don't have this wonderful internet um that we have right now to to get that access or to learn from people who do know things that you're interested in and you can pick their brains so my goal all the way, like literally back into elementary school and middle school, was to write as small as possible, to draw as small as possible. You know, I remember vividly, and I've told this story before, that I can remember, I have a picture in my head of me at a friend's house on his bedroom floor with our notebooks out, drawing little airports and space stations and like competing to who could draw like the smallest plane that still looked like a plane. And at that time, you can't find the pens that you could today to write that tiny. So my, I guess my first awakening, I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is the home of Louisiana State University, very large university. So they have a very large bookstore. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather was an artist and he would take me there to troll through the architect and engineering sections of the school bookstore because they're teaching these classes and they have to supply these tools. They're not telling their students to go on the internet and order these supplies. All that stuff's there and it, that's what blew my mind. Like I can remember the layout of this bookstore from like the 70s and 80s and like what pens and where they were stacked on the shelves because I was so into that stuff. And uh, that's where, that's kind of where it all started at that at the college bookstore um, in the architecture and engineering section. <laughs> That's cool. I mean, it's so funny. You brought back a memory when you said drawing tiny, mm -hmm. because I remember having these tiny little books and, you know, they were just, and, and I remember doing the same thing. They're almost like little diaries. Yep. And, um, you know, back then I was watching like Battle of the Planets and G-Force and all this kind of, you know, Hercules and all these kind of shows, right? Yep. And tr trying to draw that stuff in these little, little tiny books. And, um, you know, Fountain Pens, I think was... Was it a Parker fountain pen? It was fairly cheap, and you'd buy the little refills, and they'd always leak and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But so, 
did you draw then? Did you carry that through when you were going through high school and later on as well? And uh, Pretty much just through high school, and then I stopped completely. Like, I took all the art classes in high school, you know. Like, my 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 big honor in high school was, you know, if you if you got the cover of, like, the, the semester's, you know, little art portfolio for the class, like, for the school, like, that was the big win. So, I'd get, I got that and, you know, those types of things. But I never considered it a career or anything like that. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't into it that much i just knew i liked it i certainly liked the supply side of it mm-hmm. and um but i didn't see that as like any type of career for me i wasn't that deep into it i just enjoyed it do you remember like a pen an experience at that age that really like did you transition from like a, a bic to something and think oh wow <laughs> yeah, so there was two pens that I, I remember. And what's funny is those pens are still made today. Um, it's when one of them's not so good anymore, but it's still made one is still pretty good. The first one is the uh, Pilot Razor Point, which that's kind of the precursor to the Secure Pigma Micron. It was a one of the original plastic tip, you know, drawing pens where you could draw fine lines with, um, you know, it's basically that drawing pen style of pen and it came in various colors like it would come in i'd get it in black and you could get purple and green and this rust red that was really ugly but it was cool and the barrels were cool because they had little sparkles in them like it was like a real shiny little barrel um and then they had a different style that was just a solid barrel color with a white ring around the top and the one i used was the shiny barrel with the yellow ring around the top so these days they still make them but they're just they're not as good a quality as what you can find in like a secure pigment micron, which does the same thing, but better. Um, the other pin is the pilot precise, which most people know now as the pilot precise V series, like the V five or the V seven. That's a great pin to this day that people love. But the ones I was buying back in the day, it's a needle point roller ball. And that was unique at the time because you weren't getting pins that had a needle tip in them. And it was this ivory barrel, and they were known for this little porthole design in the top of the cap. Like you can, I can picture these things. And the color of the ink was in the little porthole and on the top of the top of the pen cap. Now it's changed into a more modern barrel style, but it it's been so popular they've actually retroed it and made some that look like the ones I bought when I was a kid. So it's pretty funny. <laughs> That's cool. And so what happened after that? You said you, you like, did you leave it for a while and obviously pursue other things? And Yeah, so, like, like in college, I, I wasn't into art or anything like that. I went and got just an associate's degree in music business. Like, I was just trying to figure out what I wanted to be as an adult, and I still don't know um, that. <laughs> I'm still working on that part. <laughs> but basically, you know, that was the time, like, all through my 20s, like, trying to figure out what I'm going to do, you know, meet someone, eventually get married, Um you know, trying to find a job. And then I eventually landed in, in an IT career that spanned about 15 years before I left it to do the pen attic full time. But right before I got into that IT career, I got a, uh, a job in construction sales. And at the time in the 90s, we had computers, of course, but they were mostly like sales systems and databases and financial stuff. We didn't really have like CAD drawings. And so I would have to sketch parts of the things that I was selling. And I would have to read blueprints and I could see that's kind of what brought back to me like that blueprint style and engineering style lettering in 
those architecture and blueprints and different things I was seeing. And then I would have to translate that to a physical drawing for our shop to manufacture. I was, I basically worked at a manufacturing shop, but I was selling the product. And there was one guy there who cared about what pens we used to draft with as much as I did. And we were always on the search for like the perfect, tiny, really nice black pen so we can make our drawings with. And we found that at the time there was this a particular zebra model and it's not made today. Um, but uh, we found this pen and then we just hoard them. We'd order them by the dozens and those were like our drawing pens and we wouldn't let anyone use them. So that's where the pen thing kind of picked back up. Um, after many, many years of not really caring about writing or what I wrote with. And then in my IT job, I'm constantly having to take notes just for, you know, general job purposes. Um, and I always wanted something good to write with. And then it ended up being, you know, the type of work I was doing either was, you know, admin work at a time, then networking work, then storage work was like copious note taking of just like little notes here and there. And I learned how to just that I worked well if I color coded my notes. So then I started exploring was like, well, if I like this pen, can I get it in other colors? And then I ended up with, you know, like a three color note, you know, I'd have black, red and blue, you know, basic at the time. Mm -hmm. And so I always cared about what I wrote with. I was the guy that brought his own stationery to the office, right? Uh, like where everyone's just grabbing the generic ballpoint out the cabinet in my backpack, I would have whatever pen I was using at the time before I started doing the pen attic stuff. It was, Oh, what was the name? I think it was called the pilot deluxe or the pilot elite, something like that. Um, it was basically a rollerball pen. They still make it today, but it's not that popular anymore, but you could get it in 0.5 and they called that a micro tip. Well, as I'd learned much later, that's not even close to being a micro tip these days. And, um, that's a pen. Like I'd go to Staples or office max and just, if they had them, I'd buy, you know, two, four packs of them just so I could have them in stock. And that was my go-to pen for a while. And then the internet happened. I was opened up to a, a whole new world of office supplies and like the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because I do see like your writing and I always wondered where that came from. And it's good to hear that. Like I went through engineering, mechanical engineering. So I yep. did a lot of drafting HVAC and all that kind of stuff. And it's, when I saw that, yeah. it's like, I really want to find out where that came from, because that's a clear indicator that you were, in some ways, I'm going to say classically trained in writing, but that's right. a, technically trained in writing is what you were, right? Well, so. if you know about HVAC units, you'll know that I sold roof curbs, um, which are what HVAC units sit on top of, on the top of large buildings, so they can mold in with the roofing to not leak into the interior of buildings. Right. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, cool. I, I would take... I would take the blueprints home and I would practice like I was practicing my lettering to look like the engineering and architectural styles I was seeing on blueprints. I'd take it home. I'd have a yellow legal pad and I'd just a all the way down the page until I felt good about it. Then we'd go to B and just keep on going down the page until I felt good about it. My handwriting used to be like my handwriting is good now. I'm not, I'm not going to lie, but my handwriting used to be picture perfect. Like you couldn't discern it from, from the blueprints. Wow. I think for a period of time, we, we lost touch with writing as an art. And I think it's it's probably gained a little bit more uh, press recently just because cursive has become something that's not carried on through school. And uh, a lot of schools don't teach it at all. We, we taught our kids to write cursive. And um, 
I, you know, that's why I think what you're doing with Pan Addict and everything else is so valuable because it, it is that interest and anyone can pick it up, right? And you can start your journey at any point in there. So how did you then transition from that IT to Pan Addict? Like that's, that's an interesting jump, right? To, uh, yeah. to do that. Yeah. So I started like my IT job, I guess I started that in 2000. And then I always had some type of outlet outside of work just for creative purposes, whatever. For a time on the internet, I would write about baseball. I was always online. I always liked the internet and I always liked sharing information. Um, in the early 2000s, for me, that was baseball. Like I'd talk about minor league baseball on the internet and write articles about it and just share them just for fun, a side hobby. And then that got into... I remember specifically, I found a pen at an Office Max one day, and it was a .38 millimeter, and I'd never seen anything below a .5 millimeter, and this was a gel pen. It was a Uniball Signo RT, and I was like, huh, they really make pens that small, and this is like, you know, 2006-ish, 2007. I'm going, huh, they really make pens that small. I, I didn't consider the fact. Like, I thought I would just, I was skating by with, like, my .5s that I liked. And, you know, I was frustrated with some of them, but I was happy with some others. And I thought that was as good as it got. But then I found Japanese pens online. And I started ordering Japanese pens. Um, there's a company called Jet Pens that's very big and very easy to order from. And you could get a ton of like all the way down to 0.18 millimeter pins. And like, that's when my mind was blown. Right. And I started ordering all these things and I was like, why isn't any, why didn't anyone tell me about this? Right. Why? Like, this is what I want. Why is no one telling me about it? And I thought, well, I'll share about it. Maybe someone else wants to know that, Hey, you can get a 0.28 millimeter pink gel pin. You know, you just got to know where to go find it. Um, so I started sharing that online and that was 2007 in the 2007s when I started the pen addict and this whole time I'm, I have my day job it's just a blog side hobby I would um, you know either write posts at night on the weekend um, my whole key back when I started the blog and to this day is I would have a picture of what the pen looked like when it was writing like I wasn't the first pen blog but you'd be surprised that there were some people like reviewing pens with no picture of how like the pen wrote on a page and like I didn't understand that and so like always even back then you know the pictures were horrible the reviews were terrible but it was there like I took a had a notebook uh, a Moleskine reporter's notebook the small one and I'd write my little review on it and I'd take a picture of it and say here's my review of this pen and uh, I people started emailing and reading commented somehow they'd find it um, that I don't really, I don't really know how it got found, <laughs> but like one person found it, then they shared it and so on and so forth. And so that hobby just kept growing and I started to get some traffic and then I started to get some companies wanting to work with me, you know, whether it's providing review products or advertising, things like that. And then Mike found me in 2012, started the podcast and things are just kind of ramping up in pace. I'm fully committed to doing the pen addict just still as a hobby. Um, I would take my lunch breaks from work to work on blog posts, right? I'd go, I'd take my lunch and just go write pen reviews 
um, take my notebook and take the pen I wanted to review and just write a bunch of stuff. And um, it eventually just kind of morphed from there. Like, you know, later on came fountain pens and that like turned a big corner. And that's probably fountain pens are probably what caused me to or allowed me to be able to eventually quit my job because there were a lot of other things that went in, went into that market, which I was never a part of fountain pens. Uh, when I started the blog, I'd hard, I don't know that I'd ever used a fountain pen before 2007. And as being a pen addict, I was not a fountain pen fan, but people always ask me about fountain pens and well, that's, that's a whole nother story. (laughs) So what is it, do you think that pulls you forward with pens? What is it about the next pen that you're like, I have to try that one. What is it about pens? What is that that's triggered in your DNA that you have that that connection with it, right? Yeah, because like, aren't all pens the same, right? Like, (laughs) well, if you have one pen, you've you've tried them all. And once I discovered that you could completely customize your writing experience to fit you, not just how you write, but your style and your personality and like the things you want to see on a page – that's what keeps me going. I was like, pens are a luxury good, really. Like if you have your basic Bic, that's really all you technically need to write or to draw or to be an artist. So I understand from that aspect that like there's some consumerism and luxury goods part of what I do. Um, but there's something about writing that makes me feel different. And I think that's a lot of people's interest So they start thinking about, well, are there other tools that, you know, I write this certain way, would a certain type of pen benefit that? Or, you know, I need a permanent ink for my sketches. Does something like that exist? And I've always looked at it as I try the next thing as much for me as anything to see, to give my opinions on it but I want to be able to share that information as well. So what keeps pulling me forward nowadays after doing this for so long is the continued creativity of the community that I'm in. Like when I started, it was very big box, big brand, big companies can only do these things. And that's where you're purchasing from. And then the the further we go and the more you dig in, you learn that there's smaller makers and individual stories behind these small brands that are doing just as important work as some of the big brands and getting to share that with other people, man, that's, that's everything for me. And in addition to this, you also have knock as well, right? Yeah. I I got a couple, I got, I got a lot of things. (laughs) I got a lot of things. So I have a pen case company. I'm part of a, which is knock. I'm part of a pen company, which is spoke pen. Um, you know, and then I have all the pen addict stuff in the podcast. So yeah, knock, knock was, I guess that's a good transition from what I was just saying. It's the culmination of individual styles and tastes not being available on the market. So Knox's whole idea was to make pen cases that I want to carry. Like literally me. Like I'm not saying the general I or the you. Like mm-hmm. the case that I want does not exist for me for Brad. And that what that is is something that kind of looks like a backpack, right? I like modern pens. I like colorful pens. 
Um, I like wild pens. And then the case for me to put those in is brown or black leather. Nothing wrong with brown or black leather. I just don't want it. Like, I want the green bag with the yellow interior. And it's nylon and it's got zippers and I can hang stuff on the zippers and I can put patches on there. It's like a little mini backpack for my pens. So I found the perfect partner to make <laughs> basically mini backpacks for pens. That's what they nice. are. <laughs> yeah, they look awesome. Yeah, so uh, we use we use like nylon. We use nylon, you know, because we can get it in crazy wild colors and do wild things that we want to carry and we hope others like it too. I mean, that's kind of our unofficial philosophy. We make things we like. We hope you like it too. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's fun. I agree. It's when you do search for kind of pen accessories, it yeah. tends to reflect that you know kind of the the, the black and the browns and th that's that is fun and I think that's and we'll talk about fountain pens a little bit further, but I mean, that's reflected in kind of the designs and the ink colors and everything else versus maybe what it was years ago, right? Absolutely. And like when we first started taking knock to pen shows, which we can touch on what all this is later for, for anyone who's, who's not sure, like we would just get the funniest looks, right? Because we're bringing like pink and blue and orange in, in the sea of color into this like staid and stoic uh, room and people are like who are these guys like my partner's like tattooed from head to toe and like who are these people <laughs> like what are they doing here and then like once they saw all the people coming in they figured it out pretty quick that oh it's good to have them <laughs> we like those guys now <laughs> <laughs> so I want to ask you about fountain pens mm -hmm. because that for me it was a is a Twisby was my first fountain pen mm -hmm. and I I found it, and I still find it hard to figure out what am I going to get, right? It's, I, I don't know what to equate it to. I mean, it's not even like buying a car because there's way more types of fountain pens than there are cars, but it's it's figuring out, you know, you have to take a bit of inventory of yourself and identifying what do you want out of this, right? And as, and it goes back to your point about style, right? I want a good drawing pen, Um and I assume the people, the person listening is interested in a drawing pen, maybe calligraphy, that kind of thing. Can you help, you know, for maybe somebody who doesn't have a fountain pen, like where do you start? Are there, and maybe talking about how they fill differently as well, uh, because I think that, and, you know, understanding the nibs and the difference in the nibs, because, you know, I've talked in a previous episode about finding a good flex nib is, seems to be a bit of a challenge. Oh, yeah. Um, that, so that's an entire podcast, that. entire <laughs> podcast on flex nibs, but we, we got time for that. Um, so fountain pens in general are intimidating to most people. And like my whole goal is to tell people that they're not because I was extremely in intimidated and extremely scared. And I'm on record and it still haunts me to this day. I'm on audio record in like episode two of our podcast saying I hate fountain pens. And now I'm like one of the biggest like fountain pen like supporters <laughs> around um, because like you kind of said it right. Like you don't know what you're getting, not just in, Hey, how am I going to use this and write with this? But how do I have to, it, like there's care and maintenance. You mean you're, you're telling me I have to like, I have to manage this a little bit more than the, the disposable pen that I'm going to use up and throw out or replace the refill in. And yeah, it, it, it's intimidating. And I think with artists, especially they're already past the point of where a lot of people are with 
the mess type of aspect of it, right? Art is a messy, uh, messy hobby and you get ink on your hands and things on the table and, you know, tape stuck to places it shouldn't be stuck to and, and all kinds of things like that. But you do have to pay attention a little bit to a fountain pen. So let's take your Lamy Safari, for example, and because that's one of the good basic starter pens, it's expensive as well to get started into this like you're taking a jump from a three dollar pen to a thirty dollar pen essentially if you're going to get like a basic fountain pen and that's that's intimidating because you want to make you don't want to make a mistake with thirty dollars with three dollars you're willing to light that on fire maybe uh Mm -hmm. in in the sake of experimentation thirty dollars not so much so the Lamy is so popular because number one it's very well made a lot of artists to this day make their living off of Lamy Safaris because they're virtually indestructible. Um, they can take all kinds of beatings. And the key to any fountain pen, not just the Safari, is how it's filled, right? What ink are you putting in there and how are you putting it in there? So the Lamy Safari allows for two ways to fill a fountain pen. It ships with a cartridge, right? So whenever you buy your pen, and this goes for pretty much any pen, not just a Lamy Safari, they're going to go ahead and give you a cartridge and you unscrew the barrel of the pen and you pop that cartridge in and then the ink flows, right? So if you like the black ink cartridge that they provided you or the blue ink cartridges that they provided you, you can continue to buy those cartridges um, and refill your pen anytime you want. Now, at some point, if you're using those cartridges, you're still going to have a nib that needs care more than just you refilling the ink when it runs dry. At some point you're going to have to clean it. And that's where a lot of people start to lose it with fountain pens because it's not difficult. It's actually easy. You just basically have to flush water under it from a faucet for starters and then shake it out in a paper towel and then refill it with your ink cartridge. And you're going to be a lot better than you were, you know, five minutes ago when your pen was clogged up because you haven't, you've used a six pack of cartridges through the pen and it's just thrashed, right? You can't, it's just putting out gunk. So that's one way to go about it with the cartridges. The other thing with Lamy, they also sell a converter and that's basically an empty cartridge with a piston filling mechanism in it. So it's a little twist mechanism that goes into the pen empty. Well, with that, you need a bottle of ink. And then that's an intimidating thing to (laughs) go buy. How do I know I'm buying the right ink? So like, there's this whole intimidation principle. Like I'm trying to like get out, trying to like share like my journey through that, like figuring these things out. Like to this day, I still do things that someone might consider wrong, but there's no right or wrong. Just like there's no right or wrong in art, right? There's no right or wrong way to fill your pen. You fill your pen in the best way possible. There is kind of a right and wrong about cleaning it though. You should always clean, <laughs> clean your pens. <laughs> but the, the converter allows you to buy bottled ink. Now, from an art perspective, that might be a an ink with some type of permanence in it, right? Like a good black ink, you can put watercolor washes over and the ink, you know, stays put on the page. Or a journaler who wants their written word to last hundreds of years, right? You can get some archival type inks. Or like me, you can get an orange ink to match your orange pen, right? That's kind of cool. That's what I like. Or a pink ink to match my, you know, purple pen, whatever I want to do. And that's where your converter comes in. And that's where your Lamy has this utility 
to be a lot of different things. It can't be them all at once, right? right? You have to, you can switch and you can clean it out in between, but you can have these different types of filling systems. You might have one Lamy that's just cartridges that's portable that you take out and that's your urban sketching, goes in your urban sketching kit. And then you have a different one at your desk that's got a converter where you've swapped in like a forest green ink because, you know, this this artwork that you're you're working on requires that color. So it's good in that versatility. It's hard to get past the intimidation at first, but once you do, you'll go, oh, that's what I was worried about. That's nothing. And it just becomes part of your routine. If you get into fountain pens and you find yourself with like five of them, maybe on Saturday, you have to spend 20 minutes taking them all apart and cleaning them and inking them back up again. That's part of the deal with fountain pens, but the benefits way, way outweigh any of the the trouble that you have with them. And so cleaning a fountain pen, whether it's a $30 pen or a $300 or, mm-hmm. you know, $3,000 pen, sure. the procedure is similar, right? Like the mechanism in which ink is is laid on the paper is similar mm-hmm. and the way you disassemble it may be slightly different, but it's basically the same, right? Yeah. You're going to say, I would probably say 95% or more the same on any pen from the most expensive to the least expensive pen. The cleaning is going to be the same in very simple terms. I use one tool to clean my pens and it's a nasal aspirator, like literally the booger suckers that you can get (laughs) at the drugstore, right? Because it's Mm -hmm. high pressure water that you can squeeze through the backside of what's called the nib section, the little part you unscrew, you take off your cartridge or converter, set it aside. You run it underwater, run that nib section underwater first. Then you fill that aspirator up with water put it in the back of that hole and pressure wash basically through the nib. And then you shake that out in a paper towel and then you're done. That's literally it. Do you have to clean the converter? Uh, you, if, if you're not changing colors, if you're not changing colors, you don't have to, Okay. but if you're not changing colors, you do want to clean the nib on occasion. You don't have to, if you have using a converter and you're using pinking, okay. And mm-hmm. you run it through, you can continue to fill that converter with the pink ink and the nib, but after like the third or fourth time, I'll want to clean the nib just because there could be some okay. buildup in there. And is there, okay, let's talk about nibs and then we'll talk about ink. Okay. So I've heard you on the podcast with Mike talking about the difference. Obviously there's different types of nibs, you know, uh, fine, extra fine, medium, so on and so forth. And there's also a difference based on the geography, right? So if <laughs> yeah. you buy a Japanese nib versus German or whatever the case, can you maybe talk through that? And help, because that's the other bit, is you go to order a pen, right? And it's like, which of these seven nibs do you want to use? It's like, what? Maybe you can talk through what your feelings are about the nib to use and why people would deviate from one to the other. Yeah, I think that's probably the most confusing thing, more so than cleaning and inking a pen, more so than picking out of ink, more so than picking out a pen is how do I know what nib I'm supposed to use? So you start off, first thing you want to start off with is what are you going to use it for? For me, my I, for me, it's mostly writing, right? I don't really use fountain pens for art. So what is my writing style? Is it my writing style cursive? Is it block print? Is it some mixture of both? Is it large? Is it small? So if you take those, have those two kind of questions, like what you're going to use it for and how do you write, then you can start to say, well, Brad specifically, he writes in a print style and he writes tiny. So he should look at an extra fine nib to begin with. And you say, great. And okay, I ordered a Japanese extra fine nib and I hate it. (laughs) Why do I hate it? Oh, well, I didn't tell you that Japanese nib sizes are 
about half the size of German <laughs> and Western nib, nib sizes. Um, that's one of the more confusing things about it. So rewinding that back a little bit to the beginning. So you want to first determine what your use is and what your style is. So I like extra fine nibs. That's the generally the smallest stock nib, what you can order. Someone who writes in cursive and journals, they might want a little bit broader nib. So then you go up to maybe a medium size nib. And then if you really want to lay ink on the paper, like either for art or for writing, your, your, handwrite, your handwriting is just big. You can use a broad nib. So that's the basic range of styles. So why these two different sizings exist, I don't know that I could explain specifically, but generally the Asian countries need smaller size nibs for the type of characters that they write, right? The different, you know, different languages, different writing, different shapes, different angles that they're hitting more than us necessarily. So they start, well, they like the naming convention of extra fine, fine, medium, broad, except let's make the extra fine half the size of what it would be in Germany. So you just, you do have to understand the place of origin when you're buying a nib and it's really just two choices, even though I will grant everyone that it probably should only be one. So if you're buying a Japanese branded pen from a Japanese manufacturer, your medium is going to be much finer than a German nib from a German manufacturer medium. I mean, like almost twice the size with a line width that doesn't sound like much, but even for like a medium nib, that's a huge difference. Then you have a huge range of materials. And now what's beginning to become more popular is a wider stock selection of specialty nibs, whether it's a stub nib, which is a flat kind of truncated nib to make uh, a lot of calligraphers will use that to make, to give you great line variation. Like your horizontal strokes will be very wide. I mean, your vertical strokes will be very wide and your horizontal strokes will be very thin. So there's mm -hmm. different nibs you can get to facilitate that type of writing. Um, the flex nibs is a challenge because I don't even know how to put it because it's one of those things that is internet famous, right? Like you see it on Instagram and YouTube and these people doing this work. And like, if I'm seeing that, I was like, oh, I like writing and I like pens. I want to do that. Well, you can't just go and pick up a pen with a nib like that unless you're talking about loose nib units like comic nibs like uh, zebra g nibs or you know browse pumpkin nibs or whatever these these types of nibs that are just a loose nibs that require a handle that's a dip nib type of pen not a fountain pen situation right um mm -hmm. so that's one way to get the flex the other way is to pay a lot of money to have a gold nib with a lot of flex in it and you're still limited and that's so we're talking like your dip nib with flex is going to run you, I don't know, six bucks for a pack of five nibs and another five or six bucks for a handle. So like 12 bucks or a $300 nib modification. I mean, nib and pen with a nib modification to give you flex. Like there's not a lot of great options in an inexpensive fountain pen flex. Now we're starting to see since it's so popular. So many people want this. We're starting to see some companies come out with some steel nibs that are reasonably priced, like a $25 nib with some flex. You're not going to get that crazy, you know, multiple 
millimeter variation from the thinnest to the widest, but you're going to get something, something you can play with to see if you like it. And in a fountain pen that will allow you to have an ink capacity greater than a dip nib. So it's the flex nibs are a challenge basically because of that. You can get um, other specialty nibs much easier, like your um, stub nibs, cursive italic nibs, even food aid nibs, which I know you mentioned. Sailor mm-hmm. like has stock fountain pens, like disposable fountain pens for like under $10 with food a nibs in them, which a food a nib is basically like the fountain pen, the metal nib version of a brush pen, right? It gives you this really interesting line variation from wide to thick, and you can make interesting strokes with it in your writing or artwork. Um, so you can get some things, but flex, you're not going to find that type of, uh, type of nib for a flex nib. Unfortunately, you know, maybe one day we'll see it. Um, you can find vintage flex, which is what you'll see in a lot of these videos, like pens from the 1930s, say, for example. Though it's a little more riskier proposition because a lot of the, those have very high maintenance overhead. Um, you know, there's they've been restored by someone probably. There's new internals to it to make sure the ink has the right capacity, uh, different things like that. But you can find, like, you'll see some artists swear by, like, about $100 for a really high quality vintage flex fountain pen and i that's a reasonable reasonable price point um if you're looking to get into any kind of flex fountain pen and for something that's vintage how are you filling that um most of them have some type of lever on the side so it's a little bit more complicated for a lot of these pens so the internal so like you can screw unscrew the pin from the middle and you'll see what looks like a, a like a bulb sack on the inside right it's like this piece of rubber that uh holds the ink and on the outside of the barrel when you screw the barrel back on it'll have this little bar where you just kind of tick up the bar like you're uh sucking in ink by applying pressure like you're sucking in sucking out uh type of lever system on the outside of the pen that's a lot of them okay and that that's what breaks like that's those things break and that's why people like have to restore these pens but if you can find good ones from like good quality restorers you can get that's where you're going to get the most flex the most flex bang for your buck is in a vintage flex pen but it's also the highest risk purchase right and and i so i have a couple of sailors and Mm -hmm. i think one is 40 degrees and the other is 50 and then i Mm -hmm. bought a converter so i'm using the platinum carbon because it's a waterproof ink awesome can you talk about inks a little bit because i think you know there are there are advantages to not using a non-waterproof ink where maybe you do your watercolor and then you apply ink last so you're not concerned about the watercolor or the watercolor fastness i guess of that and then you've got you know the colored inks and the shimmer inks and then there's some inks you shouldn't use in a fountain pen right so is there i mean platinum carbon is that kind of the go-to for waterproof it's the pinnacle of the artist black waterproof ink like it's the most recommended for not just artwork but for like archival type writing you know, the kicker is that it only comes in black, right? The way the pigmentation works in that ink, they just offer it in black. Um, Platinum does have different composition of ink in colors, but it's not quite at the same level of, I don't know, rigidity. I don't know. It's a very, Platinum Carbon Black is known for its waterproofness and its, um, ease of use and cleaning right it's not an extreme ink like you wouldn't put an india ink in a fountain pen the um 
lubrication of the ink and different uh, components of the ink don't work well to flowing from a fountain pen. It will just end up drying out in your nib and clogging the nib. Where platinum carbon is designed to mimic that look on the page yet behave extremely well in in your pen so that's kind of like the pinnacle ink if you talk to an artist and you're going to hear that <laughs> you're going to say platinum carbon that's like mm-hmm. the go-to ink with other fountain pen inks you can get iron gall inks which is essentially the traditional old school way of you know some people might call them nut inks or nut gall inks that were you know were you know, Nuts were foraged, boiled, and they would end up making this color that could be used to write with. And the properties of that would end up being waterproof. Like, it, I'm sure it was an accident found in the first time, but it's like, oh, this ink is permanent. And you can get these properties in fountain pens. And for a time, like even when I was starting fountain pens like 10 years ago, it was scary to use an iron gall ink in your fountain pen because you weren't quite sure how it was going to work and how it was going to perform. Would it, was it too strong for your pen? Like would it eat away at different parts of the pen and damage your pen somehow or stain a pen with that you didn't want to stain? And like, yeah, if you weren't paying attention, you could get in trouble. But nowadays you can get not quite the platinum level rock solidness of permanence, but you can get really waterproof inks and archival type inks in all kinds of different colors. Like you can get turquoise iron gall ink now, which I never thought would be a thing. And it's really good. So you can get all kinds of different types of permanent inks uh, as an artist in all kinds of different colors. Um, Platinum makes a lineup called Platinum Classics. They're kind of uh, a mixture of black and a color. So black green, black red, uh, black yellow of all things, uh, black purple. They have different names than that, but that's the general idea. And those are all permanent iron gall waterproof inks. So a lot of people use those in art as well. Most fountain pen inks are not designed to be waterproof because after all, they are a water-based ink, right? You have to have special either chemicals or natural ingredients to have that permanence. So yeah, most of your basic like oranges or greens or even your regular blues or blacks or the cartridge you get in your Lamy Safari, it's just a water-based ink. It's going to run if the rain even looks at it. So it depends on what you want out of your ink. You can probably find something permanent in most every color nowadays though, which I think is pretty cool. Shimmer is just kind of an additional thing. It's It's been around a while, but it's a new kind of feature i guess that people like for like the way that it looks on the page so it's basically when you take an ink color and you add some type of particle to it some type of micro dust or powder or glitter that makes the ink when it dries have a different look than it does in the ink bottle so if i have a blue ink and it's got like gold shimmer i'll write my name on the page say brad and it'll be blue and then by the time it dries it has this gold sparkle comes out in this dryness so it's super photogenic it looks great on letters um and you could use it for artwork but none of those are permanent typings okay um, so you you know that's just strictly a a writing or just you know an, an artwork type of ink where you're you're not looking um uh, for any type of permanence so so I'm going to ask a guy who has a lot of pens what his favorite kind of couple of pens are right now. Ooh, and and ooh. and colors. And I suspect the color may be easier, but 
Well, the the key word you used is right now because it <laughs> it changes all the time. So, in preparation for this for this podcast, I took your show notes and I rewrote the entire thing with a Sailor Pro Gear, which is one of my all time favorites. And I do have that nib modified again. Like you make the you eventually get to a point where you say, "I want my handwriting." to look exactly like this and you can do it right because it's taking what you already have in my style my handwriting style and making it better so i have a cursive italic nib grind on a sailor pen um and like i rewrote the entirety of your notes on my page just because i wanted to just kind of run through like i like to do you know little prep little like i don't have to ever refer to the notes because i've written them in there in my head that's the benefit of handwriting right exactly so, yeah, um, that's one of my favorites. Pretty much any sailor is always going to be a favorite. Um, I have been recently using the Y Studio resin fountain pen, which is a really unique pen that actually people who aren't into fountain pens and are artists might like. So it's very long and sleek, almost like a brush, but it has a fountain pen tip. It has a converter or a cartridge type of filling system. So you can use cartridges, converters, different things like that with the pen. And it's just kind of a joy to use. It's not cheap at all. Like this pen is like 90 bucks. Um, mm -hmm. You know, compared like my sailor is like well over 200, but like even like we're talking about your Lamy Safari, those are expensive pens. Like I don't want to discount the fact that like a $30 Lamy Safari is stupidly expensive for a pen, but mm -hmm. it can get real expensive. So something like this Y Studio is like $90. It's very expensive, but it's kind of been my, my go-to art sketching pen just because I like how it feels for, for that type of uh, work. So um, those I've been using a lot. What else have I been using? Um, you know, I still use Lamy Safaris to this day. Um, I, I got a new, I got a new fancy Lamy Safari that you know. I don't know. If it's we probably don't want to blow people's minds with what I had done to <laughs> one of my Lamy Safaris because just the basic Lamy Safari is pretty darn good. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I mean, my favorites change every day. I use a lot of pens. I probably have a dozen fountain pens inked up right now, and then probably you know, a hundred more in the closet that are just sitting there waiting to co go in and out of the rotation. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> that's truly an addict. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I, I had one sale last year. Like, you know, I'll go through them from time to time and say, you know, I hadn't inked up this pen in a year. I don't need to own it anymore. Let someone else buy it. And uh, I'll go through and do that about once a year. So it's, it's about time for that. That's good. Mm -hmm. I, um, I want to ask you about paper. Sure. And because you know, even when you're dealing with uh, paint and uh, in, in painting and drawing and all of that, you're always looking. You know, I, I'm looking for a, a heavyweight paper, something that's archival. Then you've got this, you know, rag, cotton, synthetic discussion that happens. And I know we could go do a whole podcast just on paper, but maybe if you can talk a little bit about what you use, what you recommend, what you've had good experience with when it comes down to you know laying ink down, because I've I've drawn a watercolor paper when I do my urban sketching with ink. And that's an interesting process because if you're on cold press, you've got that texture, which isn't bad, but is a different experience. From your perspective, what have you enjoyed and what would you recommend people try out that they could walk into a, well, not walk into a store, but maybe order online? Yeah, a lot of these are now finally being able to, to walk into some stores and find certain brands that I've been using for years. Like Rhodia is one of my favorite brands that I use. Um, there's really kind of two types of paper 
And these are just my terms for them that I use. One is a coded page and one's an uncoded page. So like the Rhodia paper is a coded paper. If you put a water-based ink on it, the ink's going to kind of sit up on the top of the page and take a little bit longer to dry. But the benefit is that you get a much more richer and brighter color. And I'm talking like rollerball. It doesn't have to be fountain pen. Rollerball, gel pen whatever you're going to get a better color representation but the trade-off is in dry time so that's like a coated paper the Leuch term uh 1917 notebooks that every have become really popular that's a kind of an uncoated paper where that's a quicker dry time um it's got a little bit more feedback so like artists will prefer more of an uncoated paper right because they can use pencils and they can feel the control on the page so those are kind of the two styles of paper i like um the other brands I like are mostly Japanese brands. Apica makes kind of a good in-between. Like, it's not too coated and it's not too uncoated. It's like a, I get a good color characteristic and a good dry time. So Apica is one of my favorite brands for paper. Same with Kokuyo. Uh, same with Life. Same with Moramon. All of these are Japanese brands that I just, that's the primary source of my notebook use. Um, a Midori notebook is what I'm using right now. Um, it right. falls in that same category. All of those papers have hit that sweet spot in between the Leuch term and the Rhodia for high quality, good performance, good dry time. Your inks don't feather or bleed on them. You know, there's a limit to how far you can push any paper. But in general, for your general day-to-day -day writing, um, it's funny, like the paper conversations almost have harder to have than the fountain pen conversation, even though the fountain pen conversations more intimidating. I would rather have one pen and a whole choice of papers than a whole choice of pens and one paper. I like I really like mixing up the types of paper that I use. I find it, um, you know, the way learning how different pens work on different papers is is really cool and fun and that's pretty much what's on my desk all those japanese brands that i i mentioned i'm trying to think of anything else i've been i don't use too much uh tomoe river paper that's also not really an artist paper like it's more of a writing paper for ink characteristics and then i also don't use on that same aspect a lot of art style papers thicker heavyweight sketchbook paper um watercolor paper those things are kind of out of my out of my range a little bit so i, I don't have too much to say about those yeah i've got um i have uh, i think two or three midoris and uh, i really enjoy them i mean just opening up the leather it just feels like i'm gonna do something important today that someone's yeah. gonna find in a hundred years <laughs> <laughs> what a clever thing you said right <laughs> there's a little bit too much pressure with it yeah. but. that's why i don't worry about having waterproof and archival inks in my pens i was like do i really want that stuff to hang around that long <laughs> right so just before we leave um ink and paper and pens what do you feel is has been kind of the biggest advancement in pens in the last say 15 years accessibility on the internet information sharing right the the entire fountain pen market has changed in the last let's say 15 years and that's before i really got into it if you look back at the 90s you could buy fountain pens all over the world if you liked black or burgundy barrels with gold trim and that changed, you know, in the 2000s where companies were starting to understand that their customers weren't necessarily business people, but 
stationary fans, hobbyists, artists, and while their core still might be business and office, that there's this whole market of people out there that want to express themselves differently than having a black and gold pen. Nothing wrong with black and gold pens. I own black and gold pens, but I also have a choice now. And being able to have that type of feedback that the internet provides to learn how your customers are using their products and get instant feedback on what's working and what's not working has changed the market. It's also allowed people to learn about the market and fill gaps in the market on a very smaller basis and have businesses that make unique pin cases, right? That don't have to compete with, you know, a behemoth company, but more so into pin makers where you have a guy in his garage or, you know, a woman in her office building something and then selling it on the internet to fit the needs of that one other person that is interested in that one other very specific thing. So I think it's it's definitely a unique situation to see all the change that's happened in the past, you know, 10 to 20 years because this market has changed immensely in that time frame just under the realization of how customizable things are and the access that we all have now to find things that that fit us personally. So I'd like to tell you some technical aspect of like what made the fountain pens better, but we're still using the same technology in a fountain pen today as we are, you know, a hundred years ago, you know, there hasn't been much change. There's been small change and improvements and, you know, more mechanized filling systems. Like there's some really custom like piston filling systems and things like that, but none of those move the needle as much as the broader aspect of just being able to access so many different things and companies like learning more about their customers to provide those things. Hmm. Interesting. I, and as you're talking, I'm I'm list I'm thinking back to all the manufacturers that you've mentioned on the Pet Addict podcast, where you know it's a couple in Hawaii, it's a guy in um, I don't remember where he is in Chicago, possibly that's you know, and it's great to hear those stories because it 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 does feel that um, it's a person to person kind of business, and I'm think I'm I'm leading myself into our next topic, and that is doing business in this space right and because uh, i think it's very close to art and we had a conversation a few weeks ago you and i about about this a little bit because i thought it would be interesting to talk about the business side of things and i don't usually like to venture into that space but i get a lot of questions about that and people are are mindful of not no, not only i think starting your own business but understanding who you're interacting with and what you're supporting and how they're dealing with you and I think it provides a, a lens by which we can act as consumers in a more educated fashion in, in understanding who we're doing business with. So on the business side of things, maybe I'll start with this question. Do you think that you are providing a product or a service? Oh, that's a good question. I don't think I've ever been asked that. My, my gut reaction is that I'm providing a service because I see myself like my goal is to help people, right? I do that through making a product, right? I write words about pens and share that information. You know, I record audio about pens and share that information. You know, I do sharing in, in other platforms, whether that's Instagram or Twitch and just like my whole goal with everything I do is to make people 
comfortable in thinking about, you know, what stationery they like and answering the questions that they have from a beginner or, you know, finding out, you know, some new information that someone has, has been wondering. Um, so I, I definitely feel more of it's like a service. Um, but I guess it's provided through a product <laughs> being the blog, the podcast, um, you know, Panatic memberships, not co products, spoke pen products. Like I've been able to build like all these things as kind of one, you know, umbrella thing. But I think underneath, you know, there's, there's no pen addict. If I don't, if I'm not able to help people find information and be able to talk to them in one-on-one -on -one fashion through email or in person at pen shows and, you know, helping them discover things that, you know, might m matter to them. So that's kind of my goal, whole goal. I would agree with that. And I mm. kind of set you up with that because I, I think that's exactly how you operate mm. and you can see that. And I think that's so important in people dealing with creative tools uh, whether it's the tools to create the art or the art endpoint, is getting a sense that it's all service oriented, right? So it's, you know, some artists will sell their work, but they'll also do teaching, right? So right. they're they're providing that service, not that product. And I think as long as people look at it as a product, it ends up at a better experience for the user. And I think that's exactly what you're doing. You are providing a service, some of which is available for free and some of which has a cost to it. And I think being able to benefit from Brad Dowdy's experience and his mindset and being close to that is what uh, really helps to sell everything that you do. And so I think that that's why I think that model is so captivating and so interesting for, for people like me is I, I think that there are people out there that are doing this that are just, I'm, I'm making this thing and I'm going to make 300 of them and I'm going to sell them as opposed to I'm going to sell myself and I'm going to sell what I can do and I'm not going to, it'd be nice if you bought this first thing, but I want you to come back for the fifth thing. And right. I want you to tell everybody you know that they should come back and buy the seventh thing. So I, I admire you for that. And I wanted to ask you, like, because you're service-oriented, are you mindful, and I guess you have things in place already, about the frequency by which you, you that you reach out to your customers? Like, are you mindful that I need to reach them this week or it's been three days and I haven't touched them in some way, whether it's one podcast or another or a newsletter? hundred percent. Like I, this is my job now. This is my full-time job. Just so, so we're clear, like, um, where I'm into like year five of working for myself as the pen addict and all the other things that it entails. You know, that includes all my other side businesses, but for the sake of ease of conversation, like the pen addict is my full-time job. And I'm super cognizant of what I ask from readers and listeners in that it's comfortable. It's not overbearing. Um, I have a, a responsibility to have, you know, a, a wide open door. Um, that's how I built built everything that I've done is like, you can ask me anything, anytime, whether it's, you know, just about generic stuff or about business stuff. And I'm going to tell you the truth and the open answer, not the marketing answer. Um, because that's what I want out of any transactional experience, you know, in the end, at the end of the day, I do ask people for, for money is how I make my living through products or, you know, services or memberships or things like that. But, um, yeah, like I, I am, I take, pen addict customers 
very, very seriously. Like the number one thing is what readers and listeners, um, how I'm making them feel like, are they getting, you know, seeing enough content on the blog? Are they getting like a jam packed newsletter, you know, every weekend that they've, that they've paid to have access to, are they getting my best effort every week on the podcast? And that drives everything that I do. Like that is of the utmost importance of my everyday is, am I doing right by the reader or the listener? Absolutely. Without, without a doubt. Like I, I couldn't function if it was, if it was any other way, I'm not built that way. Um, I do a lot of things in the way I built the pen attic that are not by the book, right? You're not going to read my story in any book because it's not, it's not sexy. You know, I'm not crushing it or hustling it or whatever, you know, the, the hot terms are right. I'm doing what allows me to sleep at night, right? My decisions are being made. Do I feel good doing it? Will the reader enjoy it? And did the decision I make, am I going to sleep at night after making this decision? And if it's, if, I'm going to be up all night worrying about the decision I made, then it's the wrong decision. And like, I'm willing to accept those things. And like, I do things on a very personal level. Like I have a very personal blog. I have a personal newsletter. I talk about me, right. And my experiences through stationary and that's resonated with a lot of people. And I'm forever grateful for that. But like at the end of the day, like I really have to be comfortable with what I'm asking for commitment wise to readers and listeners and consumers and making sure that they get everything that they hope for and more. So that's of the utmost importance to me. Yeah. And I think what I really loved hearing you say when we spoke a few weeks ago is you have this curiosity mm. about business, not just the creative side, but the business. And so you were talking about that I reached out to this person, I subscribed to this, and you're, you're reaching out and doing that. And I think so many people need to be doing that, being able to reach out and, and, and you know, if you see someone doing well, subscribe to what they're producing and, and evaluating that. And I found that, um, you know, that we need to do more of that. We need to be able to, in order to generate something good, we need to see what good looks like. We need to all constantly adjust what is good and what is bad. And if we're stuck on what we think is good, great, and we see something really good, then I think we need to take that in consideration into what we produce, right? Yeah. And I wanted to, you know, explore that a bit further because that was around memberships is part of what we had talked about. And I'm wondering for you, and for the person listening who's an artist and thinking about a newsletter, because I've got a, a mailing list, but I haven't set a newsletter yet, right? I'm still mm -hmm. kind of working in those, through those stages. How has that newsletter experience been for you? Awesome. It is a an enormous amount of work and responsibility that I take with the utmost seriousness. It is the single number one thing on my list every week that I provide good content for my newsletter that I'm asking you to pay me $5 a month for to receive. That is a monstrous ask of anybody. And I do not take that lightly whatsoever. I put a lot into it. 
Um, I hope it shows every week. I feel like it does. I'm happy. 99% of the time I publish, let's see, I think I've published 227 now, one a week for the past four plus years. Wow. It's, I book off my entire Friday for just that. That is all I schedule on my calendar for Fridays. Um, no one gets access to me on Fridays. I don't have any calls, any podcasts, any shows, any other work other than working on that newsletter. And like you, like you can look at it, you pop it open and you read it and you're done in 10 minutes and you know, hopefully you, you got something out of it, but like I put a lot into those. It's hard to explain. Like when you see the output, like, you you probably, hopefully people feel good about the output. And I think they do the feedback I've get, I've gotten, um, is that people love getting the newsletter, but I, it is my primary focus every week. I can say that without question. Um, and it's a lot of hard work because of the commitment of people. It's something people pay for. Like that's the first thing I've done where wasn't like a singular product, right? It's subscription based. So that's, that was a different animal for me. And, um, I took the plunge and fortunately I had a bunch of readers that were willing to jump in the pool there with me. And, um, I'm ecstatic to see how it's grown from when I started it on uh, January 1st, 2016. And would you recommend an artist, even somebody like myself, who's doing it as a a side gig, that Mm -hmm. it's a, a worthy exercise? So... Like one of the things we talked about that I want to talk about like on on the record is we talked about the idea of the mailing list, right? Just in general, not subscription newsletter, but as a mailing list product. If I I don't have really any regrets about any of the like the business type decisions I've made in the past. The one thing I kind of wish I just started in the past was just a regular open mailing list, like free open mailing list, even if it's just once a month from the pit addict checking in to people who read and you're able to get like really valuable feedback even if only one person replies back like if you asked a question say you know what would you like to see from me in these next two months you know my schedule's opened up i only have x amount of reviews or x amount of pieces that are scheduled you know what would you like to see from me today or you know three weeks from now that information is super valuable and even if you only get a reply from one person so i would have had a mailing list just to be able to talk to the readers more directly and more personally than putting that in a blog post right my blog posts i think seven posts a week seven or eight posts a week i lose count Um, I wouldn't want to mix that in with my regular content saying, Hey, here's what we're doing. I would like to have that relationship through just a basic generic free newsletter. And that's one thing I did not do in the past. I don't regret it, but I think it would have been a nice to have thing to where we could communicate a little bit differently than on the blog. And if readers sign up for it, they feel a little bit more a part of what you're trying to make. So, and then the second part of that is, okay, how does it work as a membership model? That's a little bit different question and, and would vary uh, a lot depending on the situation. So, I mean, I, I enjoy it. I, enjoy, you know, I play to my strengths, right? Like I chose, that's what I chose as if you're going to support me with my membership, the core of it is going to be a newsletter I deliver every Saturday morning at 10 a.m., right? Other memberships might be completely different, not newsletter-based, 
could be anything, but I played into something I knew I was hoping I was good at and gave that as the primary benefit to becoming a member. That's helpful. And now I wanted to ask you as well, you've played with Slack. Yeah. And you've played with, or you continue to do Twitch twice mm-hmm. a week, Tuesdays mm-hmm. and Thursdays. How have, how have those platforms been in trying to reach uh, your th- those people you serve? I'm not going to say your customers. I think I prefer sure. the model of those people you serve. The funny thing, the funny thing is, like, I've been trying really hard. Like, I want to say friends. Like, everyone's. <laughs> I feel like everyone's a friend. Like, I try to have these conversations around pens, like with my friends. Right. That's mm-hmm. why the 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 members only podcast, which I started this year. That's a that's a whole different conversation. It's called Friend of the Show. I and it's a joke that I say, you know, everyone's my friend, but that's how I live my life. Like, I just want people to be super comfortable in talking to me, asking me questions. So. It's been hard to me for me to say readers and listeners. It's like, like so. All my friends read the blog, <laughs> <You know? laughs> so yeah. Um, Slack is interesting. Um, my first thing for people on Slack, and if they hear this podcast, they will all say Slack is closed um, because what we've done with that platform, it's not made for right. We community built on a workspace platform and it's a free platform for that and it is super valuable for everyone that is able to take part in these conversations and read these conversations as a tool for like businessy or pen addict i don't use it for that whatsoever like it just exists for people with common interests to come hang out and have conversations about common interests. And there's 0% business relation within there. And I do that on purpose. I don't post my blog posts in there. I don't post my podcasts in there. I don't post anything business wise in there. Maybe there's a rare occasion when there was an anticipated launch of a product at knock or spoke that I might give people a heads up. I do not use that as a platform for promotion whatsoever it's just a cool place for community people to hang out and talk amongst themselves and then sometimes i i talk in there too um it can definitely be a rabbit hole you can lose hours of there i know people spend all day in there with their work they'll have the slack window up i can't be in there too long because i'll get lost and like i got got work to do um but you know either like there's a platform called discord Mm -hmm. that i've dabbled in a little bit Maybe that's better for community building. They each have their pros and cons. Slack has some things that like all of us as members don't like, especially since we're on the free platform, but we could never afford to have like a paid Slack. It wouldn't be worth anything for us, uh, the amount of money it would cost. But it's kind of a fun to have place for people to hang out, but it's 0% business related at all. Um, Twitch, how would I classify that? I guess it's kind of businessy related, but it goes part. It's really because I just want to be able to share more. And that's one more way I can share things. And I'll show up for an hour twice a week live on Twitch. And people can just come in and I'll either have a topic, like I might do an unboxing and show some new pins and talk about some new things. Or we might have a hot topic of the day, like if some pin company did this or that, we might talk about that. Or people will just come in and ask me questions. I have found, I want to put more into Twitch. Uh, I'm finding it very valuable for just 
me being able to talk to people um, and then being able to ask me something directly and get a direct answer right at that time. Um, I want to keep trying to grow that platform. I don't know what that entails. Um, I'm a little bit limited on the amount of time I can spend on that, right? I have lots of projects that are like an hour or two each. And by the end of the week, that's a lot of different hour or twos. And Twitch isn't quite there yet for me to take more hours from something else to put into it. But I could see that coming. It's proven to be better than I expected for just communicating with your your friends. Right. And obviously the podcasts are huge. I mean, you've got the Pen Addict one and then you've got a member-only podcast. The Pen Addict podcast remains... If, I, if my newsletter is number one, the podcast is number two, it remains to this day shocking how much, number one, I love doing it. Like it's it's... I look forward to it every week, even after 400 and however many episodes I said, I, I lose count. And that how many people listen to it. I am stunned. It's, you know, a lot of that is thanks to my partner, Mike Hurley, um, on the Relay FM network. So we get a lot of good crossover. Um, we end up being, you know, it's, we joke about like, it's a podcast about pens, you know, question mark <laughs> that plays really well on the internet because people don't believe it's true. And then they realize we've been doing it for seven or eight years and they're like, really? <laughs> <laughs> um, it has, uh, it's a huge part of the pen addict and what I do. I I'm never going to stop doing that. I, I absolutely love doing that. Even though like that's, even though they're a week apart and just like the newsletters a week apart, it's another thing that's hard to put together to like come up with an hour for me and Mike once a week is, is challenging. Um, but we, we do it, we've done it every week for so long now. It's pretty, it's pretty great. It's one of the things I'm the most proud of to be perfectly honest. Yeah, your um, chemistry between you and Mike is fantastic, and you you know you haven't had many guests on the show, mm -hmm. which I think is part of its its charm. But mm -hmm. you you have, I mean, you had Mike had his wife come on, Adina, mm -hmm. talking about her kind of first foray into purchasing, and I thought that was great because it did provide the listener with a different lens into this world of pens and ink, and so I thought that was that was really well done, and that idea that you both of you are exploring that a little bit mm -hmm. uh, was kind of cool too. Yeah, I think to this day, I don't know that we've ever received more feedback on a single show than her first appearance on the show, because it's like, yes, y'all have gone, Brad and Mike, you've gone past this point, but don't forget that there's people who are just listening to your show for the first time in episode 392 that don't know all these things, and having Adina on, like, I hope that reminds you of that. I'm just like, you know what? You're really right. Like, I have to focus on those things sometimes that, you know, someone's listening to me for the first time today, and how do they feel about the experience? Like, will they come back tomorrow? Like, it was great. The amount of feedback we got on that was fantastic. Yeah, that was awesome. And I, I should mention, and it's I think it's given with people listening, but anything we've talked about will be in the show notes. I'm probably gonna have to poke Brad <laughs> that's a, for, for that's some a long of the links. that's a long show notes. <laughs> it is. So I wanted to talk about the you know maybe we'll and I don't know how much time we're gonna I'm gonna try and cover a few things here. So the work life balance. Mm -hmm. You know, as creatives, most cases we are working at home. We may have a studio. We may not. Um, has that been a challenge for you? Um, 
I guess let's let's take that in two parts. One, when I was still working my job, of course it was, right? Mm-hmm. Like Penac was just a hobby at that point, but there was a change I could see in just readership and sponsorship and everything was growing and I was getting asked to go to more pin shows to help people out, to make appearances and do things like that and having to take off time from work to do that. On top of that, I was working third shift. So it was like a huge challenge at the time to decide what my priorities are. And it like, it came to a head. Basically I had to decide to, you know, continue with my IT career when I'd been at the same company for 15 years and moved up the ladder or make a jump to make far, far less money, but have more control over my life. Right. At the time, like my kids now are 11 and 13 and they're growing up this whole time. I've had the blog, right? If I started the blog in 2007, my kids were born in 2006 and 2008. So my life changed drastically. Um, so now I've been working for myself for over four years And I still find it challenging, right? Because as the kids get older, they have more things going on. My wife is in the medical field and works weird schedules, right? It's just not like the same schedule every week. So I've gotten to the point now where I don't know that I ever had a true problem of finding that balance, but I've gotten to the point now where my weeks are generally structured. Like I know going ahead of time what is required of me for work, what is required of me for family, what is required as a parent, what is required as a husband, um, what is required for my own mental sanity um, during these times. I don't have it perfect every week. I try to get better. I'm working on trying to give myself more mental breaks. Um, I do struggle with that part of creativity a little bit when I feel like my schedule is overtaking my life, whether that's personal or work, um, and fitting in more times for just thought or reading or meditation or writing, whatever that might be. So I think I do pretty good. I think if you asked my wife, I think she would say, I think you do pretty good too. So I feel okay. I feel okay about it. Because it can get away from you, but, you know, I keep my schedule reasonably tight throughout the week. Like, I'm usually, like, I'm not a night person anyway, so, like, I'll never be working at night. Like, if I'm working at, like, 8 o'clock at night, like, something's wrong. You know, I never do that. Like, I I, I make my schedule to fit where I, I know I'm going to be my best, and I think it's working out pretty well like i have my challenges that's for sure if you were uh to offer some advice to brad of the past Hmm. what would you uh and and maybe the the listener who's thinking about spinning out on their own they've got a full-time job they're doing something on the side what what kind of advice do you think you would uh offer those two people so the best advice i give to other people and i think it's because I allowed myself to give it to myself is to be yourself in your work. And what I mean by that is we all have a set of mental guidelines, you know, a moral compass, things that, you know, we believe in and those things in like a business decisions say, okay, am I going to allow this person to pay me money to advertise 
right? These things manifest in those type of decisions. It's like, wow, I could use the money in the bank. Do I want to, you know, get in bed with this advertiser? Yes or no. And that goes back to these decisions about, you know, can you, am I going to be able to sleep with that decision? But the biggest thing I think that I, I tell other people who want to start a blog, want to start any creative endeavor is to let your personality come out. Be the person that you are from the beginning, because if you're not and there's some type of change, people are going to like, it's going to feel weird and awkward. This is why, and I, I say this knowing that I'm going to make some of my friends mad who, who are, who are in these businesses. This is why I don't do things like an email marketing drip, right? Like I don't use those, like I'm not a very markety speak guy, right? Because it doesn't feel comfortable to me in having a conversation with you in that manner. My conversation with you would be, Hey, I was paid $300 for this advertisement for the month. Like I'm super cool telling you that information because if I'm on the other side, I think that's like a relationship I can have, right? I want to know that about the people who, you know, whose content I'm supporting. Mm -hmm. And then like in my writing, I let my personality come out. I don't worry about being like super particular about grammar or like, I obviously like clean things up and make things, you know, as, as readable as possible, but it's still me on the inside. Like I don't have an editor for writing or audio. Like we don't cut anything from the podcast. We don't, we don't cut for content on the podcast because it's our true selves. And if you can, if you're making art and maybe the picture or the design you've created, maybe, you know, you've done it for a client. So maybe it's not the representation of your true self, how you present that to other people is, right? How are you choosing to discuss this topic that here's the design I created for this firm? Um, you know, how is that presented to other people? And the more authentic you can be, the more you're able to have two-way conversations with your readership. And I think that's the, like the most valuable thing that I've been able to build is that I am comfortable having and listeners and friends are comfortable having a two-way conversation with me because then we can have the hard conversations, right? Not everything's roses and working for yourself. I've made big mistakes and have had like public issues with things that crop up, you know, things mm -hmm. just crop up on the internet and I'm able to have readers and listeners talk to me about those things where I felt if I wasn't being my true authentic self, They'd be like, well, maybe Brad doesn't hear, need to hear from me about this. He's, you know, he's in his own world over there. He's going to do his own thing. But I've been open and vulnerable about these things. And this is the thing that I've said that, that I was saying before, like, you're not going to get this in the how to become a professional blogger book. Like, this is not the normal thing to be yourself, which is kind of weird. Like, I've never understood that fact. And, um, that's the best piece of advice I ever gave myself is I allowed myself to, to say it's okay being me when I'm presenting myself and my work to the world. And if you're thinking about creating, it's okay to be you too. And I just find that immensely valuable. And that's what I'm looking for. That's what I hope I'm giving to people. Just a bit of authenticity, openness, honesty. This is a reputation business, 
right? I can make all the great products in the world. I can make the best products in the world. If my reputation's in the mud, I'm not going to sell a thing. Mm -hmm. That's really good advice. That's, uh, yeah, um, I would have expected that from Brad Dowdy. (laughs) (laughs) I, I practice what I preach. I think part of this too is that you do these pen shows. You've done these pen mm-hmm. shows um, and you talk about them and, and you're accessible and all of this. And I'm wondering, you know, I don't really want to dwell too much on the pandemic, but how do you think this is going to change in the future? How do you think this is going to impact pen shows? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I have too many thoughts on that that are just like too speculative right now because we just don't know. Um, it's very hurtful to our industry in the general sense right now in that small vendors who partake in, you know, some of them up to a dozen pin shows a year, um, make a huge amount of money on these shows that keep their, maybe their brick and mortar, their online retail shop going and sustainable through the year are not getting these opportunities. From what I can tell and being like an insider right now, we're doing okay as an industry and i'm talking about this from the small scale right i count myself in the small scale you know most of the retailers i deal with that's those are small businesses i'm not necessarily talking about like the big like the pilot uniball type of corporations i don't know what they're doing but like these pen shows are individuals a lot of it's hobbyists who will go and sell things at a pen show but a lot of these people it's their livelihood, you know, what they're selling either at the pen show or at the pen show plus at home in their brick and mortar shop or in their online shop. We just had notice of cancellation of the biggest show of the year, which is the Washington DC pen show has just been canceled. Um, that's in August. There's still a couple big pen shows after that date that have not made a decision yet. I'd be shocked if we had any pen shows of meaning the entirety of 2020 just because pen shows are not necessarily a local thing. I mean, they draw a lot locally, but a lot of people travel from all over the world. And that's kind of the biggest kicker right now in the environment that we're in is, is travel. Um, Maybe there's a way with, you know, restrictions and guidelines in place, but the Washington pen show said a really funny, but pertinent thing um, when they renounced their closure, they're like, pen shows are touchy feely. Like we go to a pen show to hold the pen that we've seen online that Mm -hmm. we're trying to commit $300 to, but we don't know because we've never held it before. And what about the 10 people that picked it up before you? And how do you manage these types of things? I, I, I don't want to be negative, but I, I don't feel that we're, that we're going to have any pen shows this year. And I just hope that puts us in a position to get back to normal next year. Right. Yeah, and what does what happens with that? I mean, is there going to be more onus on the vendors to clean the pens after every experience? Is there going to be twenty? You know, they're going to limit it to twenty five percent capacity in the show, which means right. lineups. And, right. You know, I think people will put up with some of that, but it's going to be a challenge. I think, right? Yeah. For any kind of creative show. Yeah, and then we're touchy feely. That's a balance, right? Because does a vendor want to put forth the effort to meet these guidelines for twenty five percent attendance for right. three days? That's a big ask. Does a customer want to attend a show that's not meeting the guidelines and pick up every pen that everyone else has touched. Like it's, it's, 
like every industry's been is ha- trying to answer these questions and so is ours right now and we just we just still don't know and i i just see kind of a rest of the year being shut down type of situation at the at the moment but we'll we'll see what happens so i always ask for a little bit of homework <laughs> for the person listening and i'm wondering if you have thoughts about something that they can do that relates to your expertise that uh, you think they can take and explore and, and leave this episode with? Yeah, um, I, I this is a good question. I I didn't prepare for this, so I don't have a stock answer. So I'm going to go what's off with what's off the top of my head. And I think the homework would be, especially since there's artists mostly that are listening, is you should explore the tools that you have and try to understand why a particular pen or a brush or a paper works for you. And why it doesn't. And I don't mean that in the way as, oh, this pen bleeds on that page. Why does it do that? Is it a water-based ink or is it an oil-based ink? What is the composition of the paper? How, you know, what is the manufacturing like of the paper? And try to understand. I'm always trying to understand how my tools work. Because the combinations of paper, ink, and pen are the most important thing and the options are infinite right there is no end to that combination there is no math that can figure that out and that will give you i think helps give you a baseline to understand what works best for you in certain situations why that happens and might help guide you in the future to better your process, your artwork, your purchasing of supplies, things like that, trying to figure out, you know, why this thing works this way on, you don't have to get too technical about it, but not just go, Oh, well that pen didn't work good on that page. Why is that? And I think that'd be my homework for today. That's cool because I commented earlier that I liked you because you're curious and you're asking everyone to do the same. I, cool. I can't stop. I, I can't <laughs> not do it. Um, that's that's the my one thing is I can't not do this and I'm going to keep asking the questions. That's awesome. So Brad, where can uh, people find you online? You can find pretty much everything at penaddict.com. That's that's the hub. All the the Twitters, the Instagrams, Twitches, podcasts, businesses, everything I do is available at penaddict.com is the best jumping off point for all the things penaddict.y. Right. And from there, they can find Instagram as yep. well because you post a lot there. Yeah. Instagram is the place where somehow I have the best handle of them all. So I'm pen addict on Instagram, which is a miracle. I don't know how that happened. No <laughs> underscores, no weird letters at the end or numbers. I'm just pen addict. It's the only place I have the cool handle. Everywhere else, yeah, you just go click the links on penaddict.com. That's the best, <laughs> best solution. <laughs> That's awesome. So I wanted to thank you, Brad, for coming on. I have to say I've been looking forward to this, and I'm so glad that we had a chance to talk now and a few weeks ago as well. And uh, the knowledge you've imparted here, I think, are, is going to be really valuable to the artists that are trying to to move themselves forward, right, and being mindful of these discussions we've had. And, you know, this kind of stuff's invaluable. And I really want to thank you for taking your time out um, outside of the normal kind of business work day to sit down with me and have this conversation. And uh, I think uh, I see you as a friend 
And I'm sure that everyone else who's listening will feel like they're one of your friends now because this has been this has been great. Good. I, I appreciate you having me. I love talking about this stuff, if you couldn't tell. And I am I'm here if anyone has the most simplest question or the most awkward question or the most hard question. I'm here. You can you can get in touch. Please do. That's awesome. Thanks, Brett. All right. Thanks, Mike. Have a good one. You too. Show notes, including links to everything Brad and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 28. You can find links to all my social media accounts at drawinginspiration.fm, including my Instagram, which is Mike underscore Hendley, where I post all my art. Follow me or tag me so I can see what you have created recently. Until next time, be kind to one another and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod.